he lived, Stanley Kubrick would be celebrating his 85th birthday this week. And although he was far from a prolific director, chances are he would have added at least one more film to his already extraordinary canon. Of the 13 films he did make, people are always surprised to learn that his most honoured film was neither Dr. Strangelove, 2001 or A Clockwork Orange, but Barry Lyndon. Released in 1975, it won four Oscars, three BAFTAs, as well as several critics' awards. But for some reason, it's never connected with audiences the way his other films did. And so, its reputation is greatly undervalued. Your Majesty, may I present Mr. Barry Lyndon? Your Majesty. Mr. Lyndon? We were very fond of Sir Charles Lyndon. And uh, how is Lady Lyndon? She's very well, Your Majesty. Mr. Lyndon has raised a company of troops and sent them to America to fight the rebels against Your Majesty's crown. Good, that's right, Mr. Lyndon. Raise another company and go with them, too. Based on a novel written in 1884 by William Makepeace Thackeray, The Luck of Barry Lyndon tells the picaresque tale of an Irish rogue who, in the 1750s, rises from the position of a farmer's son all the way up and into the highest echelons of British aristocracy. How much of the tale can we believe is hard to tell, because the novel is narrated by Lyndon himself. And rogue that he is, when he is not exaggerating his exploits, he is lying about almost everything else. We crept up on their fort, and I jumped over the wall first. My fellows jumped after me. Oh, you should have seen the look on the Frenchman's faces when 23 rampage and he devils Sword and pistol, cut and thrust, pell-mell came tumbling into their fort. In three minutes, we left as many artillerymen's heads as there were cannonballs. Later that day, we were visited by our noble Prince Henry. Who is the man who has done this? I stepped forward. How many heads was it, says he, that you cut off? Nineteen, says I, besides wounding several. The unreliable narrator was a favourite amongst 19th century authors. For instance, Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights, Charles Dickens' Great Expectations and Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer. But today, the reason why the novel stands out is because it is held up as the first novel to be without a hero. This may sound interesting, but in relation to Kubrick, it is not unusual. You see, he wasn't interested in heroes. Kubrick's critics claim he didn't believe in heroes because he was a cynic, a pessimist, a misanthrope. And they are wrong. Kubrick was a humanist, and like all humanists, he didn't paint things in black and white. Instead, his films come in subtle and ambiguous shades. Sir, I, I have a confession to make to you. I'm an Irishman, and my name is Redmond Barry. I was abducted into the Prussian army two years ago. And now I've been put into your service by my Captain Potsdorf and his uncle, the Minister of Police, to serve as a watch upon your actions and to give information to the same quarter. Kubrick's films are often so subtle and ambiguous, it takes many viewings to understand what they are really about. A few things Barry Lyndon is about is the transience of beauty. How deceptive is the material world? And ultimately, how unstable our plans for that world can be? 
How unstable those plans can be can be seen in a remarkable episode that took place while the film was being made. Kubrick chose to make the film in Ireland, but after a short while he received a death threat from the IRA, who did not like the idea of the Union Jack being flown in the Irish countryside, even if it was for a movie set in the 1750s. So Kubrick had to shut down the production and go and find new locations across Europe. So, we may think we know the way the world works, but the truth is the world does not work. The world just turns. And to further illustrate how unstable our plans can be, the early part of the film takes place when Europe was in the throes of the Seven Years' War. However, unstable as that time was, the film ends in the year that heralded even greater instability, the French Revolution. Do the characters know that? Of course not. I hope you're not thinking of leaving us soon, Sir Charles. Not so soon, my dear, as you may fancy, perhaps. Why, ma'am, I've been given over many times these four years, and there was always a candidate or two waiting to apply for the situation. I am sorry for you, Mr. Barry. It grieves me to keep you or any gentleman waiting. Had you not better arrange with my doctor or have the cook flavor my omelette with arsenic, eh? What are the odd gentlemen that I live to see Mr. Barry hang yet? <laughs> and that leads me to the performances in the film. The two leads, Ryan O'Neill and Marissa Berenson, could hardly be called great actors. But that hardly matters. What does matter is their beauty, because their beauty informs us of two more of the film's themes, self-delusion and social oppression. O'Neill's character thinks he knows how the world works, but really he has no clue. And so he always has a slightly lost look on his face. By contrast, Berenson's character knows a lot more about the world, but has no clue as to how to change or even challenge it. So she too looks lost. And in the end, for all her awareness, she too is trapped and ultimately oppressed by the world. Kubrick was a genius at creating worlds. After he blew up the world in Dr. Strangelove, he went beyond the stars in 2001 and for Barry Lyndon, he practically recreated a world long since lost. Kubrick very rarely gave interviews, but here he is talking with French critic Michel Simon about recreating the late 18th century. Uh, I created a picture file of, uh, I don't know, thousands of, of uh, drawings and paintings for every type of reference. Uh, the costumes were all um, copied from paintings. I think this has become, you know, uh, the only, you know, a respectable, in fact, the only sensible way to do it. It's stupid to have a, a quote, a designer uh, interpret the 18th century. Uh, nobody could have the feeling, even if they academically um, studied it, no, nobody could have a feeling for designing clothes mm -hmm. out of their own period. So, um, but it is fun accumulating the information. You know, it's part of the problem that you have to uh, learn something you know, in depth about uh, something that you start off knowing very little about. Since Barry Lyndon is set in the 1700s, Kubrick was intent on capturing light as it was back in the pre-electric age. That meant filming exclusively either in natural light or with candlelight. This was an enormous challenge because in the 1970s, the only lenses and film stocks available needed strong electronic lamps to illuminate indoor scenes. Well, I mean, you might say that no film should ever be made 
which doesn't look as realistic as possible, unless you have some other objectives of making it look unrealistic. But, uh, you know, the lighting, the sets, the dressing, the costumes are... Um, well, that's something that I've always been very bothered by in period films, is the light on interiors um, is so false. And um, when you see a room that's entirely lit by candles, which they had to be, it's, it, uh, it just looks completely different, and it's, of course, very beautiful. And um, so I, um, you know, wanted to do this, and I found this lens and uh, had a camera specially uh, adapted to use the lens. I think, the, you know, the night scenes are particularly beautiful. Now, ultimately, Kubrick was unable to achieve his goal of shooting entirely with non-electric light. But that doesn't mean he didn't go as far as he could. With no cameras available to shoot exclusively by candlelight, Kubrick went to the American Space Agency, NASA, and took the lenses they were using to probe the deepest and darkest recesses of outer space. In order to shoot in low light, you need a fast lens. The lower the light, the faster the lens. How fast a lens did Kubrick use? Lenses come with what are called f-stops, and Kubrick went to f-stop 0.7, the lowest f-stop ever used in the history of cinema. Groundbreaking as that was, the effort came with a serious complication. The lower the level of light, the more difficult it is to keep anything in focus. So, Kubrick arranged the scenes so that the actors barely moved in the candlelight. He then informed them that if they did, they would drift off into an indistinguishable blur. What results then is a series of tableaus, still lives, and that's one of your themes visualised right there. These tableaus are so carefully arranged, it's as if Thomas Gainsborough, Antoine Watteau and William Hogarth had painted the images. Complementing these images is the music of Handel, Vivaldi and traditional Irish airs arranged by Paddy Maloney of the Chieftains. But you know what is strange? For all Kubrick's meticulous attention to detail, for all the painstaking lengths to which he went to get things right, he gets some of the music wrong. It sounds pedantic, but the story is set in the late 1700s. Yet Kubrick uses a piece of music by Franz Schubert that the Austrian composer did not write until 1827, almost 40 years after the story ends. Does that matter? Not really, but it is worth noting because it tells us something about Kubrick's understanding of cinema. You see, when it comes to film, it is the feeling, not the facts, that count. Barry Lyndon has many virtues, not least of which is its structure. It contains a series of robust, yet subtle symmetries. For instance, there is a visual symmetry that adorns many of the images. You can divide the picture right down the centre and it's like a mirror. Added to which, the film begins with a duel and there are several more duels before the final one that marks the story's climax. Between these contests, there are several occasions in which games are played. Characters pretend to be other people. And because this is a story about a rogue, Barry gambles away a fortune, all the while seducing several women. Marking the biggest symmetry of all is that the film charts the rise and fall of its central character. Barry Lyndon is a long film, which is odd because Kubrick did not like long films. It runs over three hours. Well, it doesn't so much run as walk. Its pace is very measured, so you have to be patient with it. But I think it's a beautiful, intelligent and warm film. 
Only don't take my word for it. Martin Scorsese regards it as Kubrick's best. Ridley Scott worships it, and you can see its influence in anything and everything, from Amadeus and Dangerous Liaisons to There Will Be Blood, Master and Commander, The Last of the Mohicans, Atonement, The Prestige, The Duelists, Marie Antoinette, Chariots of Fire, Interview the Vampire, Days of Heaven, The Royal Tenenbaums, Birth, The Hunger, Fanny Lanner.